Young disciples, just a reminder, instead of giving you uh, guides to follow along today, we have laid uh, palm strips over here on the side table, and we want to encourage you to take those. Adults, you can grab them too. I don't know about y'all, but if I don't take notes or have something to fidget with, I can't pay attention, especially for 45 minutes of somebody just going on and on. So anyways, you can grab one of those as well. You can fold it up into a necklace, a, a bracelet, a cross. You can swipe your sister with it. No, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. Um, but you can grab one of those. And, uh, and during the sermon, when I say the phrase, bless the king, I want you to wave your palm strip, young disciples, okay? Even if you folded it into something, you can hold it up and show me that you still got it and that you're paying attention, okay? Let's practice. Bless the king. All right, all right. Adiola getting in the mix. I like it. So today we're going to continue in the Gospel of Luke, and so I'd invite you to open your Bibles with me there to chapter 19, verses 28 to 40. You can find that on page 878 if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs. So in light of our celebration of Palm Sunday and Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, I want to call us today to bless the King. Did you already forget? (laughs) Come on, come on. But here's the question. What does it mean to bless the king? You got it again. First of all, obey him. And second of all, worship him. So with that said, please stand with me to honor the reading of God's word. And if you cannot stand, please stand with us in your hearts. Again, today's passage is Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 40. church, hear the word of the Lord. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. Throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, They spread their cloaks on the road as he was drawing near, already on the way down from the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Church, the Lord has spoken to us. Let's respond together. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. (laughs) 
Well, you may have noticed that uh, there was a wardrobe change up here a minute ago. It's my first one in the history of preaching. Since it's April and our spring soccer clinics kick off at the end of this month, I'm going to start each of my sermons with a soccer story, and I'm going to rock a kit. For y'all that don't know, that means jersey when it comes to soccer. I knew that about an hour ago when Marcus told me. So here we go. In 1942, Adolf Hitler was not satisfied with having conquered most of Europe. He wanted to be known as the greatest military general of all time. And so he pressed his army into Russia. And this, this blitzkrieg was tremendously successful, as you know. And Germany easily arrived at the Ukrainian city of Kiev. As part of their humiliation, citizens of stature were rounded up and executed except for the championship soccer team. Instead, they would be forced to play the German soccer team with the expectation that they would be beaten and their people further tyrannized. So can you imagine the temptation here would have been something like, let's just stay in the locker room, okay, and, and not die. Instead, Kiev's teams took the field and actually won Not once, but six times. Despite being given fewer rations and not allowed to practice. Despite threats against their lives if they won. And despite Germany bringing in stronger and stronger professional teams each match. In fact, the last match, knowing that it would cost them their lives, they still won eight to nothing. And then afterward, some were tortured, some were executed, and some were sent to concentration camps. And ultimately, none of them survived. My question when I hear this story is, what is it that gives people the kind of courage in the face of death to stand like this? The deep natural inclination of every human is to preserve its life, but here they freely laid it down, and were victorious, even in defeat. Such was the courage of Jesus Christ. Over the past year and a half, we have been in the section of Luke's gospel that follows Jesus' final journey to Jerusalem. All the way back in chapter 9, Luke tells us that Jesus set his face like a flint. His resolve was as hard as a rock, you might say, to barrel toward the city that would ultimately kill him. And for this reason, it's significant that today's passage begins like this. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. After doing amazing things throughout Galilee and Samaria and down into Judea as well, he departs Jericho not to go on tour in other places, but to go straight into enemy territory. The disciples might be thinking here, man, let's stay in the locker room, y'all, and like not die. But instead, Jesus takes the field. This is why Mark adds this detail in his version. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. They're saying to each other, oh yes, man, I can't believe he's finally doing it. Oh no, I can't believe he's finally doing it at the same time. 
And yet they followed him. And along the way, we'll see, in light of his kingly courage, they blessed him. You see, our invitation today from this passage is to do the same thing as we follow his lead. But the question is, how do we do that? What does it mean to bless the king? Well, first we'll see in verses 28 to 34 that it means this. Obey him. Read with me as the passage continues in verse 29. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet. And let's pause there for a moment. This is more than just a geographical note. The Mount of Olives had great significance according to the Old Testament. The prophet Zechariah had written of the Messiah and his return to judge the world this. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. So it is no surprise The Mount of Olives is one where Jesus fully surrenders himself to the cross and is arrested. Remember that? It's also the place where Jesus later ascends to heaven after his resurrection. And, Zechariah says, it's where he will return to judge the world. Now, I have actually been to the Mount of Olives. And obviously, the view would have looked a little different from this one over here. But in one of the most fascinating things about being there, was all these rectangular shapes that you see spanning the valley in between leading over to the Temple Mount. Anybody want to guess what those shapes are? What would you say? Somebody say tombs? Yes, that's what they are. They are tombs. Devout Jews who chose to be buried at that very spot, the thought being that they get to be the first to rise when the Messiah returns. Also fascinating was a group of Orthodox Jews whom we noticed intensely observing the Temple Mount with binoculars. Yeah, this is my picture of them. And after I took that picture and they noticed me doing so, they jumped into a van and sped off. So my reason for sharing these observations from the Mount of Olives is this. How is it that those who do not even know the true Messiah can be more gripped by his coming and second coming than sometimes we are ourselves. To obey King Jesus isn't to say, I've already got the whole Messiah question figured out, so I'm just going to stay in the locker room, play it safe. No, no, to bless the king with obedience is to be sent on his mission. And this is just what we read in the rest of verse 29. He sent... Two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you. Who's taking the lead now? Where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So being obedient to a king who courageously enters into enemy territory means that sometimes you are sent to courageously enter into enemy territory. This is Jesus' upside-down mission. Go ahead of me into a village that I'm about to enter, 
and take what seems like a random donkey, and if anyone asks you, and when you are asking yourselves, why in the world are we doing this? Just tell them the king needs it. That's all you got to say. Like, what in the world? Look, this is why we all have a hard time following King Jesus sometimes. Because he will often lead you to do things that at first don't make any sense to you at all. Anybody with me? It's like, why, Lord? Why do you want me to do this? People will think I'm crazy. I think I'm crazy. I'm kind of starting to think you're crazy asking me to do this. But if you obey him, you will often find that he has already prepared the way before you. Verse 32. So those who were sent went away, and guess what? They found it just as he had told them. Was this a prearranged thing then? Had Jesus like given someone a secret password in order to procure this cult? Well, whatever it was, it shows us that Jesus was completely in control of this situation. Down to the smallest detail, a specific cult in a specific village with a specific set of owners. And so what he's doing here is fulfilling every line of the Old Testament, such as another of Zechariah's prophecies, which went like this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, look, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Powerful, mighty, going to overthrow your enemies. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Like this, this is Jesus' lordship on display. This is Jesus pulling together all the threads of God's purposes in the world, bringing order out of all the chaos of humanity. And he's doing so not on a mighty war horse, is he? No, that's what conquering kings ride, not a colt. Who rides a colt? Like Frodo Baggins? (laughs) Nacho Libre? Anyone here ever ridden on a donkey? Anybody? (laughs) That's right. If you've lived in Africa, you've probably ridden on a donkey at some point. So here's the thing. I rode a donkey up and down these crazy steep steps in a place called Petra, Jordan. And at one point, my donkey wouldn't budge. Wouldn't go. You know they tend to do that, right? And so my handler shouted out a curse that apparently the donkey was familiar with, slapped him on the rump, which made him leap down multiple steps and then sprint down the rest of them. Terrifying. I clenched like no one ever has in the history of the world because I was a good old country boy who's not going to fall off a donkey in another country. But that saddle was tied on in such a way that it just went sideways. So I rode side saddle on a donkey down a mountain in Petra, Jordan. There you go. That was on a broken donkey, accustomed to people riding on it. The wonder of Jesus in the triumphal entry isn't just that he's fulfilling a prophecy. That's great. It's that he's riding an unbroken donkey. Like, imagine how wildly that animal would kick and buck 
But when it comes to Jesus, <laughs> it's like it was created for the very purpose of regally carrying a king. And indeed it was. Jesus is the Lord of all creation. And under his command, things return to what God intended them to be. And when you see his lordship on display in this way, you see that he's trustworthy. And he's worthy of obedience. Just like the owners of the colt in verse 33. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. That's it. And they brought it to Jesus. One scholar points out that since this colt has multiple owners, according to the language here, it's likely that these owners are poor because they have to share the animal amongst themselves. And that means that it would have been a great sacrifice to let this animal go. And yet they obey. Why? Because they recognize the Lord as the true owner. This is not my colt. This is the Lord's. And he has need of it. I let go. And I obey when he calls. And this is particularly hard for those of us who live in America. Listen, the history of our nation is literally characterized by denying all submission to a king. (laughs) Anybody think of this in history? One of the common slogans during the Revolutionary War when we were breaking free from British rule was this. We serve no sovereign here. And indeed it was so. In our view, absolute power is one of the greatest evils in the world. And y'all, that totally makes sense considering the world's track record of tyranny. The ironic thing is, we all serve a sovereign here. We turn people and things into kings and queens all the time. It's that thing, that person that gives you meaning in your life. Threaten it, and you'll be furious. Lose it, and you'll be bereft. Obtain it, and you'll still be unsatisfied. Let me give you some examples. Children, can you make the precious gift of your children as wonderful as they are? The king of your lives, just to make them happy? Just to make everything go well for them? Yes, you can. And it will leave you bereft. It will leave you unsatisfied. Because children are not a good king. What about work? Can you make your work into a king? Men, we've talked about this in Bible study for the last month. Absolutely tempting for us to make our work into a king. But it is not a good king. It will crush you. Parent. Can you make a parent into a king? If I can just get their approval, then life will be well. Many of us live according to that sort of kingship. It is a bad king. What about this? Freedom, the autonomy to do what you want, when you want, how you want. Yes, we turn that into kings all the time. And it is not a good king. It's a bad king. It will tyrannize you. It will ride a war horse into your heart and rule. Only Jesus, only Jesus will ride a colt. Only Jesus will ride a colt. Only he will ride into your life and round you up in his power and say, come to me and do what I say or else. No, all who labor and are heavy laden 
and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. He has the power. He even says so. You're going to be under my authority and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What a good king. He is trustworthy. He is worthy of your obedience. So church, this Palm Sunday, bless the king. Obey him if you want to bless him. And secondly, in order to bless him, worship him. You ever notice how when you've walked in obedience to Jesus throughout the week, you worship differently on a Sunday? You come in with a kind of readiness and eagerness to sing to him rather than a sense of shame that hangs over you that's kind of got, you got to get over that in order to, to, to worship and pour your heart out. See, worship and obedience are so intertwined. Look at how the apostles and the wider disciples take the initiative here in verse 35. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, probably beaming from the obedience that they had just fulfilled and seen God work in a mighty way. They throw their cloaks on the colt. They, they, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Now this might seem strange, but it's basically a first century way of, of rolling out the red carpet. The other gospels add that the people cut palm branches and they spread them on the ground as well. And this is what you did when a conquering king was returning victoriously from battle. And so it tells us that the people were putting their messianic hopes onto Jesus, but with the expectation that he was a warrior who came to overthrow Roman tyranny. The people were overwhelmed. Anyone here ever get overwhelmed? Anyone here besides me this past week or maybe even this morning on the way to church? Get overwhelmed? It's too much, too much to handle. You know what question that we're asking when we're overwhelmed? And I'm not just making this up. Christian psychiatrist Kurt Thompson says, when we are overwhelmed, we're all wrestling at a soul level with a question. And that question is, who's coming for me? I'm overwhelmed. Who's coming to rescue me? Who's coming to help? Like, think about a baby who can't handle the payload of an experience too much. What do they want? Somebody come for me. Pick me up. Give me what I need most. Think about a child who's lost in the mall, can't find their parents. What do they want? Who's coming for me? Who's coming to help? And we are no different, which is why we give ourselves to bad kings. We desperately want somebody to come for us in the overwhelming nature of our lives. But when we recognize that Jesus is coming for us and we start to give ourselves to him, our hearts sing and we roll out the red carpet for him to come into our lives and rule. And like you can't help it, you were made for it. Look at this in verse 37. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Bless the King! Bless the King who comes in the name of the Lord! Peace in heaven and glory in the highest! 
In other versions, it would shout, Hosanna, God save now. And it's important to see here that what they say, once again, draws from the Old Testament. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is a quote that comes directly from Psalm 118. And there the picture is a conquering king returning to Jerusalem where he is cheered by the people. And as he comes in, he goes first thing to the temple to worship. And there he is approved by the priests as one who is affirmed by God himself. And so the other words of the crowd also sound similar to that of the angels. Anybody notice that? The angels, when they announced Jesus' birth to the shepherds, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But once again, it is, it is a statement of highest approval that the heights of heaven itself affirms this king on the colt. Now, of course, this worship is incomplete because they don't fully understand who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish. And it's also fickle. Because by the end of the week, they're going to abandon and condemn this same one whom they are praising right now. But, here's the thing. It's still worship. And Jesus doesn't reject it. So my question is, how is it that those who do not understand the true Messiah can be more gripped by exuberant worship than we who do understand him? Let me ask you a question. Why is the most common posture that I often see among Americans in a worship gathering this right here? Like this is what construction workers do when they're standing around watching one guy do the project. Okay? And I understand like, I understand that we all take on different postures when we worship. And our, our outward posture doesn't necessarily reflect our inner reality on some level. I understand that we rightly reject emotional manipulation in our worship. We don't have fog machines. Our lights stay really bright during the gathering. We keep the music toned down so you can hear one another's voices. I understand. But brothers and sisters, we have overcorrected in our unwillingness to show any emotion or to involve our bodies as we sing to the King of Heaven. Good night. What is wrong? Like, do we cross our arms and scoff at emotional manipulation when we're losing our voices at a loose city batch? We say, no, 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 that's emotional manipulation. I'm not doing that. I'm not blowing this weird horn. I'm not clapping this thing that they handed out. No, no, that's emotional manipulation. I'm not doing it. Do we reject emotional manipulation when we're weeping at a movie theater? Say, no, no, I'm not going to cry over that. That music is getting at me, and I won't let it. Do we? Do we scoff at emotional manipulation when we're clapping until our hands hurt at a concert? Listen, if COVID did anything, it revealed that we're all inconsistent in our logic and application, aren't we? We're all like, I'll go do this, but I won't do that, okay? Makes no sense. We all contradicted ourselves at all times. Why in the world are we this inconsistent when it comes to worship? Sometimes it breaks my heart to stand in the back after I've preached my heart out and to see this. You know, like can, can, we, can we pay attention to our posture in such a way that it would appear to an unbeliever that we give a crud, that the king of heaven has come and died for us. Like when you look at us, you would think that the Bible said, sound like you're reading a doctrinal statement set to music. But the Bible does not say that. 
The Bible says, make a joyful noise to the Lord. Use instruments, clap and shout loudly. Like, I, here's my encouragement, not to just be like a jerk, okay? Because I know that I can maybe get to my emotional side a little bit easier than others, and I understand that. I want to encourage you to work to get worship out of just your head, okay? Sway a little. Doesn't even have to be in beat. Okay? Nod when something resonates with you. Shake your head when something does not resonate with you. Okay? Say amen. Raise a hand. Pump a fist. Smile. Laugh. Pay attention to your posture. If your posture is, I'm present and I'm here, and that means you've got to put your hands in your pockets or put your hands on the chair in front of you, that's fine. Okay? I just want to encourage you to be present in worship. Let this be an expression of whole life worship when we gather in this space. And when someone gets a little excited in light of Easter next Sunday, and they dance, or they shout, or they clap, or they cry, don't be like the Pharisees in verse 39 who say this. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. This is emotional manipulation. It's wrong. Don't do it. The Pharisees saw such exuberant worship around Jesus as totally inappropriate. In other words, he was not worthy of it. And anyone who worships Jesus should be rebuked. That's what they're communicating. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 3 tells us that no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And so we can assume the opposite of that is true. That no one can say Jesus is not Lord except by Satan. And these Pharisees are the sons of the devil. And they will soon show it as the instigators of Jesus' death themselves. And what Jesus says next shows the depths of their blindness. In verse 40, he answered, I tell you, if these were not silent, the very stones would cry out. In other words, inanimate objects recognize their king more than humanity does. That is the power of sin. Creation knows its king. It was put into, subjected to slavery, not willingly, but because of us. And Romans 8 tells us that it waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God for us to become all that God created us to be, to be able to rule over his creation once again as he intended it. And if that's true, then how much more did creation groan for the son of God himself? He is the Lord of all creation. And under his command, things return to what they were meant to be. And this means that we who know him cry out to him. It just like comes out of us. And there's a song by Naomi Rain that I wish we could have sang today, but it's way too hard for congregational singing. And so I'm just going to share the one line from the chorus. And it basically says this, I won't let a rock cry out for me. What a defiant resolve in worship. Listen, imagine your child is in a championship game. And instead of you personally going you send a picture of yourself to be put in the chair to take your place of cheering on your child. That's crazy. Who in the world would do that? No, I defy you. Nothing will take my place in giving praise and shouting and cheering for my child till I lose my voice. And so defy me in this. Nothing will take my place in giving praise to King Jesus. I will not sit on my worship in such a way that the rocks have to cry out in my place. And so, 
You want to bless the king? Worship him. Give him the praise that he is due. And that your heart longs to let out anyways. If you struggle so much to let it out, sit close to those people who easily let it out. And maybe a rub off a little. Okay? Is he not worthy of it? He who had courage in the face of certain death. He who denied the deep natural human inclination to preserve his life. He who rode a colt instead of a war horse. Leaving the locker room behind and taking the field for us. You see, it is not that Jesus points to stories like the Kiev soccer team. It's that the Kiev soccer team stories point to him. His courage. He knew this last match would cost him his life. He knew that he would be rounded up, tortured, and executed. And yet he saw our victory in his defeat. And he pressed on. Because in all the ways that we fail to obey God, to trust him enough to enter courageously into enemy territory, Jesus obeyed perfectly in our place. As he hung in full submission on a cross. In all the ways that we fail to worship God. To cry out with all the exuberance that scripture commands. Jesus worshipped perfectly in our place. When he cried out as a whole life offering on the cross. And then. Being buried in a stone tomb. Forsaken by all. Guess what? opened up its mouth three days later to cry out that the king is risen. A rock! And I will no more let that rock cry out for me because I believe that he is risen. I know it's not Easter yet, but hey, he is risen, okay? And let's not let that empty tomb cry out for us because we refuse to cry it out ourselves. Now you are the living stone who gets to open up and cry out that the king has come and the king is risen. And it still let us cry out today. Is there anyone here who's overwhelmed? You say, I can't come in and worship like you're describing, pastor, because I'm overwhelmed. It's just enough that I got here. Is there anyone here who can't handle the payload of your sin and your life circumstances? Is there anyone crying out, who's coming for me? I'm forsaken. Listen, King Jesus is coming for you. And he's going to keep coming. Because that's who he is. And he's trustworthy. He will not tyrannize you. He will pick you up and he will give you what you need most. Every time. Every time. And so the application is simple. Lay down the cloak of your life today before him. He comes in the name of the Lord to give you the very peace and glory of heaven. And what would bless him the most today, which is the application of our sermon, right? It's what I'm calling you to. What would bless him the most today would be to have you would be to have you. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and after blessing it, he broke it. 
He gave it to his disciples. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took a cup of wine, and after blessing it, he gave it to his disciples. He said, this marks the new covenant in the shedding of my blood. Not my sweat, not my tears, my very lifeblood. And as often as you eat this bread and you drink from this cup, you announce the Lord's death until he returns. Church, today we are announcing this and we're going to announce it together. Is it up there? Say it with me. King Jesus, I won't let a rock cry out for me. That is, if you are a baptized believer today, you're invited to come forward to this table where Jesus himself welcomes you from heaven. And you break off a piece of bread and to dip it into the juice. And as you're doing that, you're proclaiming what he did and that he is coming again. And you're also not letting a rock cry out for you especially if you're coming in the right spirit of submission and repentance and readiness and not shame, but acceptance that he has given you, proven by the cross. And if you're here today and you're not a believer, hey, this, this symbol is not for you. Instead of taking this, like, take him, the king who came to give you himself. And if you don't know what that means or how to do that, come back and talk to one of us, pastors, leaders in the back, so that we can explain it to you and pray with you. I know that there are people whom God is calling them by name. That's what he does. He makes it personal. He makes it personal. He calls you by name. And if you hear him calling, say yes. I don't know what else to make it complicated for. Say yes. Yes. Come in. I want you to. I'll follow you. You'll be my king. I lay down all these bad kings. They're terrible. They keep crushing me. Jesus, I trust that you won't. Trust that you won't. There'll be people to back pray with anyone who has any need. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we come before you. And we thank you for this word that speaks to our heart. And if the spirit is there and moving, our hearts burn within us. And if we find our hearts not burning within us, Still you are speaking and seeking that heart for the first time or once more. And Lord, we think of you based on your word as the king. And we desire to respond to you with our yes and to bless you. And we ask, how is it that we would bless you? What is it that you want from us? Is it just harder work? Is it more good deeds? Is it more tithing is it more whatever and you say here's what would bless me obey me and i'll be a good king to you and here's what would bless me worship me and i'll be worthy king for you to worship and so as we come to the table those who are already your children may they come blessing your heart and in turn being blessed because they know they're doing exactly what you would desire of And for those today, Lord, who know that there is not that shared blessing between you and them because they have continued to say no when you call them by name, this morning would they say yes? Lord, thank you. We give this moment of worship to you. In Jesus' name, amen.